0: Welcome to the Plant Cunning Podcast,
1: where we explore a relationship to plants, other people, and the mysteries of nature.
0: Coming to you from the High Allegheny Plateau in central New York,
1: we are your hosts, A.C. Staubel
0: and Isaac Hill. Episode 18, Restoring the Earth with Michael Polarski. In this episode, we speak with Michael about studying permaculture with Bill Mollison back in the 80s about the intersection of science and woo, about working with nature spirits, about his Restore the Earth Party, and how you can actually make some money growing herbs in in a regenerative way. We'd also like to give a shout-out to our first monthly sponsor, April. Thank you, April. And if you didn't know, you can support us on... uh, Anchor, or Spotify. I'm actually not sure how you can do it, but we'll figure it out. You can also support us by sharing this podcast widely with your friends who you think might like it, and rating us on iTunes. Also, as we were ordering seeds for this spring, I noticed that a lot of seed companies are out of a lot of seeds. Um, we actually have a lot of calendula and Tulsi seeds. So, if you would like some free seeds, be one of the first 10 people to email us at plantcunning at gmail.com with your address, and we'll send you some seeds. I Hope you enjoy the episode. Welcome, Michael Polarski, to the Plant Cunning Podcast. We're very excited to talk with you today. Um, I first learned about you... Uh, about 10 years ago, when I first got into permaculture, and you had videos up with Paul Wheaton, you know, way back then, and you had some really interesting videos, and I learned a lot. Um, and then I got to meet you at the uh, 2016 Permaculture Convergence, like the, internation- the North American Permaculture Convergence, and that was really great too. Um, so I'm wondering, uh, you do so many things, like you're an ethnobotanist, you're a herb farmer, wild crafter, educator, organizer... But it seems like most of this revolves around working with plants and working with people, and uh, I wondered, you know, how you how did you get into this? How did you how did you get onto the green path, the plant path?
2: Well, to answer that question, I'll have to go back to, uh, you know, my very early childhood, where I grew up on on the edges of a small town in uh, Michigan, and got to play in the woods. Uh, as a little child and as I got older though I could cover bigger distances and and go further afield but I always had that 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 secret little place to go play in the woods with the other kids and the adults didn't bother us so that I think that, that goes all the way back to that that love for that was enkindled in me because I got to be in nature and so that's why it's, it's important that uh, all children is, you know, have the opportunity to spend time in nature um, because it might help affect their attitude toward plants in later life. Um, and then I decided in the fourth grade that I was going to be a naturalist. Uh, so I was a great reader as a, as a, as a young one. And by the time I was in fourth grade, I had already decided my career path was going to be a naturalist. I was going to be a scientist working with nature and with, with plants and organisms. And I would tra- you know, travel to faraway places and have adventures being a naturalist. And I would pro- you know, probably write and teach. Um, and so I carried that goal to college and went to, went to university for three years but that was right in the thick of the civil of the of the uh, anti war movement the Vietnam anti war movement. And so uh, I became I became in a um, radicalized uh, by hanging out with uh, with the right kind of people at the university and I ended up I ended up dropping out of school in protest of the bombing of Cambodia that that particular point. And, and so After that, I decided I wanted to help um, uh, to be an activist working for change uh, in the with the who's controlling the dominant paradigm. And after a few years of that, I someone asked me if I wanted to work on a farm. Ah, and and I said, Well, okay. I said, I, I, I'll, I'll come for two weeks, and then I went out there for two weeks, and after two weeks, I said, well, I'll stay for the whole growing season. But <laughs> I have to go back to the city then, and at the end of the growing season, I said, heck, I'm just going to stay out here and be an activist in the country, yeah uh, <laughs> and grow food, and, and, and have a farm, and become a plant person, and and so I did, and over the years, I studied more and more about farming. And so today I could say I'm, am uh, uh, you could call me an expert on, on regenerative farming, organic farming, that sort of thing, sustainable agriculture. And then I got into all these other sciences, uh, ethnobotany and uh, agroforestry and forestry itself and uh, all, various horticulture, agricultural Arenas, and I, at, lo and behold, I turned out to be a naturalist scientist, cool. and I teach and I write, and so I, I fulfilled my four-year-old, my fourth-grade, you know, career path, and it actually realized it. Sort of took a little t- turn at one point away from it, but most of my life, I've been on that path. And uh, anyway, it's a great path. I recommend the green path to all your listeners out there. More people need to choose the green path in life and be close yeah. to the land. I agree. Here, here.
0: Cool. <laughs> <laughs> well, I also got to you know hang out in the woods when I was a kid too, and I, it seems like a common common thread between a lot of a lot of people on the on the plant path. So I guess the other thing is you know make sure kids get time in nature. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you also, you got your permaculture design uh, course certificate uh, in the 80s, right? Were you one of the first in the, in the U.S.?
2: Yeah, I was, I think, at the second permaculture course held in the U.S. 1982 uh, at the Evergreen State College, Olympia, Washington. And uh, our instructor, chief instructor, was Andrew Jeeves. It was Andrew that did all the uh, drawings and 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 Bill Mollison's early books, including his really big uh, handbook. And so Andrew was the teacher, but Bill Mollison came over himself for three uh, days of uh, with us where he lectured and talked and, and uh, we got to hang out with Bill. And that was great because I mean, me and Bill became friends at that point. And later in 1986, I put on a course Bill's first drylands permaculture course in 1986 and took that course. So, um, and then in 1988, I told Bill, I wanted to start teaching and I said, can I, can I teach permaculture courses, Bill? And he said, you have my blessings, son. <laughs> ah, <cool. laughs> like and so I started my uh, teaching career in, in permaculture at that point, 88. Um, so, yeah, so I'm, Permaculture is one of the sciences, and of course, as you know, uh, per, it, the science of permaculture is interdisciplinary. That it touches on many sciences, so you have to be a you have to be a real generalist, so to speak, mm-hmm. as well as specialist uh, to be a permaculture good permaculturist.
1: So, how do you define permaculture with all of these years of experience, and how is it different or inter- intersected with agroforestry and herb farming and these other sciences? Well, it's
2: it's it, 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 it's more integrated. It covers everything from the now, energy systems, the water systems, the all the plant systems. You know, what's uh, uh, the what are the you know wildlife or domestic animal interactions that are uh, either desirable or undesirable, and they what are the uh, how are all the, the the whole buildings are considered the social systems the all the inflows into the site all the outflows outflows so this is like a family looking at everything that they're bringing in and buying and then looking at what what are they exporting what kind of garbage or or is there recycle you know what's their waste stream so what's the incoming stream what's the waste stream how can you reduce the uh, what you need to bring in and reduce what you need to send out, so you benefit the earth at both ends, and you make your yard more self-reliant. Any anyway, rate, so I I have this idea that every yard should have a permaculture assessment, and it's kind of like an energy assessment. The um, uh, energy. They come in, they say, oh, you're losing heat through these windows, we can improve it by putting in better windows, we can change your light bulbs and save your energy bill. And so they go through and, and look at ways for them, to, you know, the people to be better off in the house. And they usually subsidize that, that uh, and sometimes they'll subsidize the installation. So we could use that kind of a service for permaculture. Every house, any, land, any house owner could say, you know, you don't force it on people, but you say it's available free. You know, the, the society pays for it and there's some good permaculture designers and they go and look at the house. They say, oh, here's what we can do with the water system, the water that's falling on the land. Here's how we can produce more food. We can make it more fragrant. We can cut out undesirable views. Um, and so we look at the, the whole ball of wax is, is, and that's at the house yard level. And then we could also look at the city level, the county level uh the on a permaculture is a, it can be designed can be used at every scale all the way state national it's it, it's a design process so that's what i would say it's what makes it different from just like a thing it's a design process and it's a set of principles and depending on how you you know there's the molisonian original principles and then the home david holmgren's principles yeah. and then they've added uh, Depending who you talk to, I think my I have a list all the way up to I think forty six principles now because wow. people are adding new ones on, and so you have a set of principles to work with, and you have a design methodology, and so the design methodology I think is what one of the things that sets it up really sets it apart from an uh, interdisciplinary design process. But at any anyway, rate, there's just a yeah. I really
1: like that idea of having um, a permaculture assessment for every home and yard, similar to the energy assessment. I think that makes a lot of sense.
2: Mm-hmm. Right. The whole world would become more food self reliant, more beautiful. People would have a better yard. They wouldn't have to work so much outside. And so then they would be, they could be, a lot of them would be happier. <laughs>
1: yeah. And there's no one size fits all. Every yard is going to be different. And so that's yeah. why there's this like plan and
2: system. Yeah. And every client's different. Some are want, they don't. Last thing they want is more, is more food, but they really want fragrance or whatever. So, yeah, yeah. you know, you, you you try to nudge everybody toward uh, being more ecological and more self reliant. And right, it's a give people the choice and the ability to to make the changes. And so, anyway, that's one of my political platforms. Mm-hmm. Cool. <laughs> you know, from a I'm cultural investment for everybody that wants one.
3: Okay, that's
0: that's I think that's a great platform. Someone Mm -hmm. should put it, you know, put it put it on the table. Mm -hmm. Uh, So I think that's a that's a really great definition of permaculture and way of thinking about it. And I think that that like the whole systems part is really what's you know sets it apart. It's integrative. It's as multidisciplinary. And also you know like every client and every house, every permaculture permaculturist is
2: very Id- idiosyncratic it seems <laughs> um we could I'm... say every we could say every person uh, yeah
3: <laughs> that's, that's very true would,
2: but yes we're maybe worse than we're maybe more idiosyncratic than average okay <laughs> yeah anyway go for it sorry
0: <laughs> well um it seems like in the permaculture community now i mean th- there's kind of this tension between liking it more uh, standardized and so on and crediting people and and then like the more anarchistic, like citizen science, scientist kind of thing. And there's also this kind of tension between people who want it to be very strictly based in science and the materialist worldview. And then those who want to, you know, you know, science is think that science is great and a great tool. But, there, you know, it doesn't it's not useful for everything. It doesn't uh, it's great, great for the material plane. But maybe there are other things going on that might uh, want, you know, need other tools. So, and I remember when I first uh, met you in 2016, and I was, I talked to you about permaculture and what I was doing, and and you were like, you know, go, go into the woo a little bit more. (laughs) So I, I I, I think you're a really great example of somebody who is very grounded in science, but also is open to, and uh, very uh, knowledgeable about the, the woo the uh other ways of of interacting with the other intelligences and so on. So what for you, like what how do you define woo and what and how do you utilize the woo?
2: <laughs> well, um I'm gonna start from a I always like the the thought that um, scientists say that they discovered something like, I don't know, five or ten percent of the matter in the universe, but they can't account for ninety or ninety-five percent. There's a less like no, we just don't know where that is. <laughs> that are the, that is the spiritual realm. So of course we you know there's X rays, there's there's infrared rays, there's all these rays that our our eyes don't see into. We don't really, you know, it's like we don't look into an X ray world. But that world that on you know, right, anyway, the world of all those solar radiations that are impacting our planet and our bodies all the time. There are there are, there is all these uh, you might say uh, unseen frequencies, and so the the earth has all these spiritual dimensions or other frequencies that uh, are related to it. And there some are more physical, uh, and other ones are even are more you might say ethereal, because there's a a, a part of matter called aether or ethers, and that. Uh, scientists use, you know, I don't, I don't know what they where they think of ethers at the moment, but, um, so some people have the capacity to actually, and all these, these other spiritual realms are populated with lots of beings. It's, we're not only, not only the, uh, we are not the only intelligent life in the universe. <laughs> they got that wrong. And, and, uh, and of course there, the, the spirit beings are, there's of course, legion. And, and what I'm particularly am involved, uh, researching, you might say, is the nature spirits, the, the beings that actually work with all the species. And so they're part of the whole morphogenetic structure of how things come into manifestation. And so as a plant grows, um, there's a, Rupert Sheldra- Sheldrake talks about this a bit, and and you can find it in the, you know. In the, look up morphogenetic um, what's a term here? Morphogenetic fields. No. The nature spirits are are beings that work with uh, those fields. They help the. Any rate, that's the. I'm trying to go into the science of the woo-woo or the science of the spiritual realm. So there's a science in the physical realm and the humans have really focused. And are really, uh, you might say um, a lot of, I would say this about science. A lot of scientists scientists these days have been bought off by the system knowingly or unknowingly and sort of sold out to sort of a, a destructive mode of living on the earth. And so just because someone says they're a scientist I don't start bowing immediately in fact, I'm likely to be, you know, maybe a little, I'm going to maybe look at them just a little skeptically.
3: Yeah, are <laughs> the corporate interests?
2: I am a scientist, but um, there's dogma in science and there's dogmatic scientists and there's scientists that have been, have sold their, sold for, for you know, for the dollar. And so, at any rate... So there is a whole a group of scientists of the spiritual realms, you might say. And so I sort of um, am a, a student of some of the scientists that are studying these realms. And what is their spiritual ecology? What are the beings that are there and what are their various jobs? And so uh, there's a guy named Jaap Van Etten, who I, I, he's using the term. He is a student of metaphysical ecology, the ecology of the metaphysical realm. And so, in a sense, that's where um, I guess that's where I'm coming from. And, and not only that, how can we cooperate with these intelligences in nature, which have been uh, have been known by indigenous people since time immemorial? As there's the the idea that fairies were invented in Elizabethan times. It is far from the truth. You know, yeah. The spirits of nature and the land and the seas and the elements have been talked to by indigenous people. Since time immemorial, I would probably place it about the time humanity started. So it's a long and rich history, this communication with these realms. And it's only that been in the last, uh, since the years of um, scientific materialism in the last couple, you know, 500, couple hundred years, especially that this has really fallen out of favor. And rate, um, anyway, so there's just a little bit about, the, you know, the science of the metaphysics and the science of the physical world. And so I have a foot in both of those, uh, both of those worlds, which is uh, relatively rare. Some people specialize one in one and not the other. Uh, and some people specialize in neither.
1: (laughs) (laughs) So what is a fairy?
2: Well, a nat- I, I'm going to give the definition for a nature spirit, and you know, it's a it's a spirit being that uh, works with 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 nature, and there's all sizes and scales. Once again, so there's there's very small ones, and then there's uh as there's, there's larger ones, and the 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 every scale of landscape has a you might say a corresponding scale, and it's a it's an annotated being in a uh, beings in a way, so. Let's let's look at it this way. If a stream in a that's flowing into a river has a uh, has a ferry that's of the stream, and then it uh, it flows into the river, and then it, um, the river you might say the river David being encapped has the stream within its orbit, or you might say within its field of consciousness. So. And then the stream itself is, is involved has different sectors, maybe little waterfalls and little springs that flow into it. Each one of those has a smaller nature spirit being that works with that. And then each of those small ones may have very small elemental beings of that, that it works with within that small. And so but the consciousness of the larger always encompasses the next level down. So the consciousness of the river, includes is it is and you might say overseeing consciousness of every stream every spring every water feature in the whole landscape so Mm -hmm. it's not just restricted to the stem of the river so to speak Mm -hmm. but it's uh and so and so there's all these series of annotated levels of consciousness and so humans some humans can tap into and say oh i just saw a little fairy fly by and you know those are those sightings of small fairies are very common and always have been now, the but less people you might say tune into the consciousnesses of the larger beings, and wow. it's usually these days it's almost always by accident. Um, most most people, others, I've run into this story many times. People say, Oh, it's just an average housewife or, or worker, just minding my own business, going about life, and poof, all of a sudden, I, I started seeing fairies, and it's sort of like you know, something clicked on. Most people keep their mouths shut. And you only see it once, but most people, more people see fairies than you might think, but most of them keep their mouths shut because they don't want to be rejected from society, become the black sheep of their family and get disinherited or thrown in prison or beaten up by an angry mob or whatever. So people have to be careful about, you know, I'm I'm one of the only people in the United States that's publicly saying they (laughs) study fairies. (laughs) <laughs> Just kidding. But um, there, I will say this, there's very few permaculturists that also study and uh, really use the, the uh, working with these uh, nature spirit realms in their design. And in the, and in their not so much the design, but in the execution of their work and uh, utilizing these, you can utilize a communication to uh, affect you might say the, uh, the outcome or how well things work. So, but I will say there's one person that's a particularly good example is uh, Alana Moore is a woman. She's a permaculturist from Australia, has been teaching and writing about permaculture for decades, but uh, more recently she's moved to Ireland, and she's a geomancer. She's really big in the geomancy dowsing fields. Okay, that books on that. But she she has a, two books on spiritual permaculture. I just uh, I just uh, I think I have one on order right now, and I have her earlier one. I think it's called sensitive permaculture, is the term. Sensitive permaculture is the title, but it's about permaculture working with nature spirits. And it's not a very well-known book in the permaculture movement. And most permaculturists avoid it like the plague. I mean, <laughs> I, have heard, I have heard it said, and I won't say which prominent permaculturist said this, but that anybody, any permaculturist that espouses religious or spiritual work in, the, in their life, you know, should be excommunicated from the permaculture movement. Mm. That, uh, you know, know. You, if you're going to be spiritual, buddy, that is just not allowed in permaculture wow. you have got to keep your mouth shut and that's that kind, really, of, that's kind I, of ironic I, wow that's quite a threat
0: coming yeah.
2: from uh, a leader in the permaculture movement what is so, permaculture a,
0: a religion like like catholic church that can excommunicate people <laughs> and if you don't keep the dogma
2: and well, then... that so there i'm going to come back to something you mentioned earlier isaac you mentioned about the 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 tension between the professional permaculturists who want uh People to get you know licenses and recognition, and they have to go through certain schooling, and they really have to prove their stuff to be able to use the term. And then there's uh, people who just want to be great. You say grassroots citizen act, citizen scientist, and and uh, reserve the right to, for anybody to to teach or or in a sense to paying out their shingle as a professional designer. Now there's uh, pros and cons. I would say to both. Yeah, both so stories. And I'm also a member of the herbal movement. And the same, the same discussion has been going on in the herbal movement for decades. Decades, there has been forces in the, that say, we want recognition, we want to get government standardized, um, you know, and, and that you, you can't use the term herbalist unless you pass these, these certain tests. Otherwise, you know, you'll be shut down because we are the professionals and we're going to make good money doing it and we don't want competition from people that aren't good at it. Uh, and so that tension has been around in the herbal movement for many decades and has not been resolved. Um, I, and I assume the same thing will happen in permaculture. The, there will be both calls for both. Uh, and I think it's great to do both. I think it's good to have uh, yeah. like the Pina, like the Permaculture Institute in North America, to have like stamp of approval for these for people. And you can put that as a diploma on your wall in a sense that, uh, you know, you, you've m- met a certain professional milestones. But at the same time, I'm, I'm very much against, uh, I'm, I am one of the people that says anybody should be able to teach or hang out their shingle. And that freedom is is really important, and that uh, we should have freedom within the permaculture movement. And if some people, if somebody's kind of a jerk or does a bad work, I mean, you know, we can't. We're not guaranteeing everybody that hangs out a permaculture shingle is going to be good, <clears throat> but we don't want to like you know squelch it and make it expensive for people to actually start. Uh, using it in a professional way in a sense. So there are some people who have taken permaculture courses that are very knowledgeable, and there's other ones that take one permaculture course and are just still don't know hardly anything. You mm-hmm. know, it's like, it's hard to turn a, 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 a sow's ears into a silk purse overnight. <laughs> right, and it seems like- bet I'm, I'm going to get excommunicated now.
0: <laughs> it also seems like the permaculture design course is kind of like more like an initiation than a full like college education or something. It's like, you have to be self-motivated and learn on your own and continue the education to really do it.
3: Mm-hmm. And- but
2: I would say that I would say, I don't, I, this would be a good question for everybody that takes a permaculture course. So many people have said that taking their permaculture design course changed their life. Yeah. yeah, it was, and and that's that certainly changed my life, and I've seen it change the lives of so many people. But then I've seen some other people just kind of like go back to the the old uh, system, so to speak. And um, and but, John, by and large, uh, permaculture, almost everybody that takes a cor- a really good course, and this I would especially say is the case with an in person course, where you have the whole group energies yeah, with you. Right and you get to be with real people. I think it's harder to achieve that initiation, so to speak, uh, at a distance course. I, but it's, they're valuable, mind you, but uh, taking an in-person course is, is, is different, it, it is. Okay. I,
1: I had one more question about the fae Other than the social implications, social dangers of working with FaE where you might be made fun of or put in jail or something like that, are there any other warnings that you have with working with nature spirits, uh, especially for beginners? Because, you know, there's a lot of traditional folklore around fey specifically, like stealing children and, mm-hmm. realms mm-hmm. and these things. And so I can't help but, you know, approach that realm cautiously. So I was wondering what mm-hmm. you do and maybe if you're speaking to a beginner who's trying to get into communicating with the fey or with land spirits, like how do you reach that?
2: Um, beginner phase how do you start that? Uh, I think to you know like you say to be on the safe side and I could go on somewhere but is is to work directly with the plants you go there and hang out with the plants and you try to tune into them and you send them love you send love to the trees you send love to the bushes you send love to your flowers I mean you actually practice the art of sending love and you know you can just of course it just sort of some people you know just sort of exude it there's a term they wear their love on their sleeve and and you hear that's an old term i don't know if people even hear it anymore maybe because hardly anybody does anymore but that was it, it's not it's not true i can see that you know on uh, ac's face there that you know there there's some of that in ac for sure and that uh so you wear your love on us on your sleeve but you as you extend love to these uh Plants and the being and you know, the animals, of course, are a great way to do this as well. And then try to tune into, you might say, the uh, subtler frequencies and uh, and and uh, try to connect up with the with the nature spirit beings that are associated there. And you, of course, you can kind of, if the more consciously you do that, that can be helpful. Um, but that's a lot safer way than, for instance. Um, uh, then, then some other ways of trying to access the spirit spiritual realms, because <clears throat> the spirit realms are not all what we call, you know, they're not all just a, what we call light filled, etc There are yeah, you know, the, nature the, light, spirit, yeah. the nature spirit realm is completely safe. You can't, you can't really go wrong with the nature spirits and the, the devas
3: Okay.
2: There are of course other spiritual, there are other spirit beings um, uh, that are out there and uh, and so there you might say there is a uh, a light side and a dark side, uh, as there is in the human world. There's a light side and a dark side in the not in the nature spirit realms, but in some of these other spirit realms. Like you know, uh, there's there's still a lot of ghosts running around out there and things like that. There's um, you know there's saints and, and gods and goddesses. You you um, there's all kinds of beings. Um, running around. And so you do want to, you, you know, I'm not, uh, so some people go at it through a, a known spiritual tradition that there's training and, and they have, they have teachers and, and, and that's a, that's a great way I'm, I'm all about, uh, but you don't have to do, you don't have to go to teachings. You can, you can tune into plants on your own and who knows, you may never ever hear anything or see anything. But I guarantee you it'll make you feel better. <laughs> yeah. Just doing that act of, of being there and, and sending out that love because we need to, there's not enough love in the world these days. And that's one way you can give unconditional love. It's really hard to love humans unconditionally, <laughs> especially the opposite political party. We're not supposed <laughs> to, be able to extend any love. Isn't it horrible that we're, bit, we've been, we're being goaded to hate? Another political party to somebody that voted differently from you. Oh my God, we're supposed to hate. It's just like, um, it's just so sad. So anyway, practice sending love uh, is is a, a really good exercise to nature. And so that means you got to spend some time in nature if you're going to go hang out with it, you know, in other words, yeah. you, know, you know, we need, uh, anyway, this, it's it's for some people have been locked down to the point where it's been hard for them to get out in nature, but at, at most, you know do what you can, folks. It uh, if they keep you too separated from it too long, yeah, you know, it's a it's a um, form of punishment, collective punishment here going on. Um, um, let's see, we, you wanted me to talk about herb farming and agroforestry a little bit, so yeah. you know let let me turn to that a little bit. Yeah. Okay. Um, mm-hmm. so maybe this is a good point f- place for me to, to, um, uh, do, do my little rant. So I, I, was, I was joking about making it part of my platform to, for, to have permaculture assessment available for every, you, you know, for any homeowner that wishes. So I'd like to, st- I just sort of was thinking, I'm going to start a restore the earth party. I'm just so sick of the current political parties. How about a restore the earth party?
3: Mm, and I yeah. said,
2: you know, and, and a lot of people would get behind it. I don't know. I would 50% of the people actually think that's a good idea rather than this, whatever the political allow this nonsense going on. But I said, but it's not the Green Party because a lot of people are automatic and they say, oh, he wants to he wants to join the Green Party. Well, I don't want to join the current Green Party, um, but I want something that's much broader and uh And so one of the, some of our platforms would be full employment because there's so much work to do to fix up almost everywhere. It would really greatly increase local food self-sufficiency and food production. There'd be a lot more right livelihood choices for people. We need a lot of seed growers and seed breeders for local seed production, propagation and nurseries. And so there's, there it it creates quite a bit of employment to to, to, uh, put all this into effect. And then uh, we could, t- I would, part of the platform, I would say is 10% of farmland is converted to agroforestry systems. And this is not taking it out of production, it's actually going to increase production. So if we take some 10% of the world's more, you might say, more degraded, uh, least productive uh, out of production and put it into agroforestry systems, it'll be much more sustainable and will build up carbon instead of it and uh, it will make it a much more productive ecosystem. So in general, I would say that agroforestry tree multiple crop systems produce more per acre than, uh, than monocultures do, than industrial monocultures. And so in fact, I, we can point to lots of whole books of research on this that say yes. And so the, what they've discovered in, um, is by really crunching the numbers and looking at lots, hundreds of agroforestry systems, is that agroforestry systems are at least 1.3 um, times more productive, oftentimes 1.7 p- times more productive. And it's not that hard for them to be double the production of the monoculture yield. So, and, uh, and, the, and the ecosystem goes up in, in uh, health, biodiversity, and carbon sequestration. And so um, converting more land to agroforestry systems and of course that creates jobs because then people have to go out and harvest the agroforestry systems. And so it's, it's more of a intensive system rather than like you can't run a combine through an agroforestry system. <laughs> it's gotta be done by hand. So there's, so we wanna make it, uh, it enable more people to get on the land and that uh, we would go so far as to say anybody that wants to have a guard, place to garden that is a guaranteed uh, human right that uh, we may even call it human right but basically let's make it available that anybody that wants to garden there's space to do it and just pretty much every city even or the outskirts of a city where you can get people there with a bus that there is there is land for the tiller so to speak um, and, and we want a good extension system for the, all these new growers and so uh, the and in permacultures would be one of the best people to be the permaculture the extension agents for this new um, restoration world restoration movement. So I'm calling this sort of like a worldwide restoration movement, but it's the Restore the Earth Party. <clears throat> of course, it could be a it'd be an international party. There was a guy one time, uh, I think his name was something like Henry Liu. A Chinese guy, and he was a really hotshot financial person, and you know, one of those people that helped uh, uh, people that were millionaires invest their money and things like that. But anyway, he came up with the idea of an unemployed, uh, an international unemployed workers um, union, a union of all the unemployed people in the whole world for their mutual benefit and 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 getting. Uh, and I thought. Now, there is an idea worth uh, pursuing that. You know, you probably be careful how much you, you know, I'm, you know I, I don't, I, he lived to, a, they didn't take him out. He lived to a, a ripe old age. Um, but any anyway, rate, in espousing that idea, never actually, I don't think ever, the best, the closest thing to it is probably Via Campesina, which is an international organization of more, you might say, peasant farmers and small farmers around the world. Um, but it's stronger in central america than in most places but there's uh, via or so but a restore the earth uh, international uh, yeah that's it's, guess what that's what i'm talking about so anyway this would sequester a lot of carbon and would just really help the world be a better place so anyway uh, uh, we'll see if uh, we'll see if we can find somebody to run the political uh, part you know did a uh, get get us registered or anything.
1: Yeah, that's really cool. I can see a lot of people getting behind it, especially after you know, I mean just not even just recent years, but um, the two-party system and, you know, the current political climate is not going to save the world. (laughs) (laughs) It's not going to restore the Earth. And a lot of people are really waking up to that and looking for alternatives, but there's not an easy one in place, you know? So I definitely support your efforts there.
0: Yeah. Do you think you could tell us a little bit more about agroforestry then? Like how, you know, how do you set up these kind of systems and make them productive?
2: Well, every, everyone's different. I've been studying agroforestry since they actually invented the term, which is in the mid 1970s, was invented in Kenya, uh, Nairobi, Kenya, a group of people that it were had just started or were starting the International Center for Research on Agroforestry or ECRAF. It, they changed the, the title a little bit later but anyway there were they started in the mid 70s and at, at that point they came up with the term agroforestry which was to put trees onto agricultural lands that didn't have trees before. Um, so this could range from orchards um, it could range uh, a lot of times it just meant putting, a few, you know, hedgerows or windbreaks or widely dispersed trees in on the agricultural land. So most of the land was still devoted to the, you might say, annual cropping uh, ground story uh, crops. Um, but over time, it became more uh, nuanced, and and it was so that it also encompassed very diverse assemblages of tree shrubs, ground cover plants, vines, et cetera, what we kind of think of as a classic permaculture system. But the they realized, or you know, maybe the world realized gradually that these agroforestry systems or food forest systems or were widespread across the world. they were especially uh, uh, used a lot in India, uh, Kerala, Java, much of, uh, Parts of, of uh, Asia have these complex agroforestry systems. Uh, Sri Lanka, for instance, is, is really notable. Um, but they had they had old systems in in the Guatemalans, the Mayans, the Aztecs, and and e- and the Eastern U.S. woodland people also had agroforestry systems here that they managed with you know you know your walnuts and your oaks and your chestnuts and various uh, oh. fruits and so we have all these, uh, you might say, traditional and ancient uh, agroforestry systems, and now we're trying to learn from them and create new ones. So we're taking those traditional knowledge and our permaculture knowledge, and we're also, uh, there's also, you might say, agricultural scientists also working on this agroforestry. So it's sort of a combination. I think the, the combining of those three streams of thought, I think is really, uh, where uh, agroforestry really becomes especially great. And you know, just coming at it from the academic sense uh, or the scientist sense, just coming at it from permaculture or uh, just coming at it from traditional, if you know all three, if, you're, if you have a foot in all three of those worlds, you are gonna be really a useful person in terms of de- de- designing these kinds of things. So I've been working and specializing in this for quite a few years and we just need uh, so many more people to take up agroforestry as a profession it's it, it sounds a little better than permaculture to a lot of people's ears mm-hmm. and so because it you know it's a scientific discipline that you can take at university
3: mm.
2: so anyway so there's you know there's three streams of thought that come together for mm-hmm. agroforestry
1: yeah we saw a video recently of you visiting an agroforestry site that you planted 25 years ago that kind of went to different hands and was a little bit more feral um, and I'm wondering what it was like for you this is our second year at our farm we planted a bunch of trees and perennial plants and things like that but what was it like for you to go back to that site and see all of the different changes and what would you do differently?
2: Well, I would uh, have, I would manage it really uh, well.
3: Yeah.
2: (laughs) The, 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 um, uh, I managed the system for nine years and then I sold it, the the planting to, um, a young couple friends. Mm -hmm. And then later on, they sold it to another person Mm -hmm. and, and none of them. And then eventually he, and then he started his own farm somewhere else. And gradually pulled out of there, so that place was gradually, um, you say, went, went into more stages of abandonment,
3: mm-hmm. and so
2: that's what I was doing in that video. And I would yeah. recommend that so it's a pretty cool video. That's so cool! I, I got some good kudos from like Jason Gearhart, for instance. You know, there's some good permaculturists that have looked at that and said, right on.
3: Yeah. So, cool.
2: um, yeah. So it's it's interesting to see a permaculture system relatively, like it was a, a medicinal agroforestry system that was deliberately planted to be, be, produce medicine.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: Um, I, I added up to 200 species before I walked, before I left the, the project.
3: Wow.
2: Um, and there's probably maybe a hundred persisting today after the abandonment period. And, and, oh, you know, so at any rate, the, um, what was I going to say about it? the, The idea, and this is mine, is not alone. If we looked around the world at permaculture planted systems, a system planted by permaculturists, however, you know they're going to vary in quality, that have been abandoned, Mm -hmm. and I know of, and, and there's dozens, and I'm sure by now hundreds, perhaps thousands of abandoned permaculture plantings out there, and. Somebody that really took the time to go and look at all of them because I see pictures of it in various videos. They say oh, Bill Mite and might walk around and say, "Oh, this place was abandoned five years ago, and just this, 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 look—it's just dripping with food." Yeah. And, still, uh, so my system has been abandoned, but it's still producing a lot of biomass. It's ecological; it's functioning very well ecologically. The yields are have been uh, are. Less now than they were when it was being managed, but I'm going to bring the, I'm going to work with it and gradually bring, uh, increase the yields again. So uh, it, the idea that you can set up a system, and this is where we go into ecosystem restoration. <clears throat> Mine is, I'd like to do intensively managed systems, but one of the goals of a, an Ecosystem restoration is to go into wild lands or degraded landscapes and put in systems that can make it on their own with just some follow-up care, but not intensive management or anything, but just <clears throat> enough uh, follow-up care to get things surviving and off for for a couple of years. Off for a couple of years. There's a a system called Grow Oasis, G-R-O Oasis. Um, I think I think is the right term. You can look it up on google it or go to look at youtubes and it's a plastic bucket system a little bit of a runoff pan so whenever it does rain the water filters down right to the right to the base of this of a seedling it's, it's a it's a nice system um, <clears throat> but anyway how do we establish uh, agroforestry is not only is blends into restoration ecosystem restoration where you're not doing much management but you have to be able to establish things in a Tough situation with with minimal resources and follow up. Now that's that takes a you know anyway slightly different approach, but uh, can be and can also be uh, uh, be, in, be a, a looked at through through a permaculture viewpoint. Um, but it also people that specialize in ecosystem restoration can do that. And I see we're getting closer to uh, to our hour here, but not quite yet. Fifteen minutes or so more. What do you think? Yeah, about
0: that. Yeah. And this is all sounding really great. Yeah, I really appreciate this conversation. Yeah. We've
1: covered a lot of the things that were on our list. So that's really cool.
2: Oh, maybe a little bit more about herb farming. You mentioned. Yeah, that's farming. exactly yeah, that was we the were. next thing. Yeah. So, so I've been farming medicinal herbs uh, for, for 25 years commercially. Uh, I, I of course started growing herbs way back in my early career of, of growing things. Um, but i really specialized and now am producing a lot of medicinal herbs on what i what i call micro farming so i'm farming a small footprint of land and and getting it intensively and getting high production and i and i'm currently last year we were able to make the equivalent of a 160,000 dollar an acre wow. on our on our site and i remember when I, i've been reading about the how much you can make on an acre for a for a long time? Booker T. Watley, I think, claimed something like 500,000 in an acre, and I think e, it was it Edie um, or Eddie. Um, oh, there on Cape Cod, and I am blanking on her name, but she 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 claimed something along those lines too. I've heard 200,000 an acre in you know intensive urban permaculture systems, or just even you know uh, microgreens and that kind of thing, and I remember years ago, um, a farmer who was a really good young farmer. He really knew his stuff, and he was really uh, at the top of his well, maybe not at the top of his game, but he really figured it out. He says, "I can make eighty thousand dollars. This is gross, an acre if things go well." Um, That's that's what I would be aiming for these days uh, for, for an acre of vegetables. And I said to myself, "Okay, that's that's a pretty high bar there, you know." And and so I'm. So I've been keeping track. And so I'm happy to say that, uh, you know, and I, I, you hear of Elliot Coleman, I think is somewhere around the order of 150,000 an acre or something along those lines, maybe even more. He's, he's probably got to be one of the highest income per acre guys on the your East coast back there. Yeah. Or people like him. And so these big numbers are, are possible with really good intensive management and uh, you know, selling your stuff. And so, um, and so what it makes me realize is that it'd be really easy for any area to be self-reliant in its herbal needs. And right now, a certain percentage of the population, population uses medicinal plants in various forms. Um, and, uh, right now very few places are producing much. And so it's their centers of production in the world, Eastern, you know, Bulgaria and parts of Eastern Europe and parts of India, China, you know, there's uh, Egypt is a big source. So there's these world sources. And then there's some, there are U.S. domestic sources. But by and large, the, the idea of local food is really big now, but local medicine and local herbs, you know, not many people talk about that yet. So that's one thing every region and should consider how can it be more self-reliant in herbs and uh one day here's here's a scenario one day all the uh the 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 global infrastructure starts breaking shipping infrastructure starts breaking down and the they can't get pharmaceuticals to people they're cut off from their pharmaceuticals um at one point i i was on was on i spent time on Kauai and we looked at the the if the island was cut off from its supply of pharmaceuticals, there would be this big, all of a sudden, this big demand for people that would calm people's hearts down or to, to uh, help people with respiratory illnesses, et cetera, et cetera, that they're currently using pharmaceuticals for. What herbs could you go to replace those pharmaceuticals or what's available, especially right now in the wild, so that you don't say, well, in a, in a couple of years, we'll produce what you need. No, what can, what can you provide next week? when they are cut off from their supplies that will help them uh, survive in a healthier fashion. Mm-hmm. And so you might say that there should be a, a part of emergency planning should be, uh, could could be, and I don't think anybody could argue with the idea that it's good to know what things will help like thin people's blood or uh, what, you know, what are all the health conditions people take pharmaceuticals for? Keep viruses at bay, they're taking antivirals or they're taking, you are know, they're taking uh, barbiturates heaven forbid but there's a lot of people on uppers and downers et cetera, and there's herbal things that are analog so what are the herbal analogs to the pharmaceuticals and how can we be we be ready to ramp up production in the case of a shutoff mm-hmm. and that's something that could be you know every area could study that and as if, if they did that more of them would want to start little herb farms yeah. There is right now huge amounts of people that want to start small herb farms in the U S because I teach that I, I do, I do workshops on micro farming, medicinal plants. And I see, you know, the numbers of medicinal herb farms have really been on the rise in North America. Um, it's not an easy road to hoe necessarily. Um, but, uh, there's a lot, a lot more interest. And I'm of course, uh, applauding that interest out there folks uh mm-hmm. grow more herbs and on the family level and then some of you on the commercial level
1: yeah it's a little easier than veggies at times because some you know perennial herbs um take care of themselves often
2: mm-hmm. but- right they're actually you know i I, got, I grew vegetables for years i was a vegetable farmer big long rows uh, mm-hmm. of carrots <laughs> and stuff and uh Corn, you know, I, I was a regular vegetable. But after a while, I got, I don't know, I guess I got a little bored and and I wanted to branch out. And so that's when I really started going into trees and shrubs and perennial crops. And that's about, that's, a, that's a pretty much coincided with I started farming in 72, got into permaculture at 80 and 81. So nine years of vegetable farming. And then I sort of discovered, aha, where's much more to the world than vegetables? Yeah, and growing, and so I then I branched out. I've worked with over a thousand species of plants now. I I, I kept I actually counted them up at one point.
3: Oh my god! Um,
2: and uh, so yeah, it's uh, it's so diverse, and it's so much um, diverse. A is not only good for the land; it's actually good for the grower too. Who, who wants to yeah, get more fun? It? Yeah.
3: yeah.
0: So how do you make that much money per acre? Like besides um, growing a lot of plants together uh, intensively. Like how do you sell all the, all the herbs? How do you, do you process them on site? And then, and then, you know, what, what are the other parts to that?
2: Um, well, there's several streams, income streams. We sell fresh herbs, uh, and we sell and we dry some and sell dried herbs. Uh, and this is main, all pretty much wholesale. We have a little bit of retail, but we're mostly wholesale. And then I also uh, harvest seeds. I do a lot of seed production mm-hmm. as well. So a lot of the herbs, um, you're still gonna get, you can get seed production and the crops sometimes, or sometimes you just let part of the crop go to seed mm-hmm. so that I have seed production. And then we also have a lot of propagation material. So all these people that wanna start new herb farms, mm-hmm. we sell them the, the little rhizomes and roots and plant divisions, um, Cool. So that they can start their own their their own planting. So we're a source of propagation material. So we also have that to sell. And we do a little bit retail. So that's you know you need. It's good to have multiple. You might say multiple marketing the angles. Our
0: system is a resilient system, as <laughs> as
2: mm-hmm. they say.
0: Yep.
1: So do you have big old rows of herbs like carrots or what does your herb farm look like?
2: You should, yeah. if you go to my YouTube channel, I have three YouTube channels right now, but especially if you go to the Anna Palata one or or Friends of the Trees um, or Global Earth Repair Foundation, but that's mostly more like the Global Earth Repair scene. But the Anna Palata is P-A-L-L-O-T-T-A, double L's and double T, Palata, Pal, at PA and she has done a lot of YouTubes of, of my farm and so you can look up I think agroforestry there I think there's various place playlists there that's Yuga um, and but anyway look for the look for the look for the the farming videos and you can see and I'll tour people through um, my main planting right now the one that's producing that kind of that, that uh, income level uh you can you can it's just I just have one fourth acre in this one planting this year we're going to we're going to increase it by half again the most I've ever had in this system is two acres Mm -hmm. so I'm when I say intensive systems I mean people think of farms like 40 acres and hundreds of acres and thousands of acres I just heard that Bill Gates is the largest landowner in the United States 400 I think it was 425,000 acres or something I don't remember the exact figure but he was the Anyway, so some people want big land ownings. I two acres is the most I've ever been able to manage at any one time. I've reached that a couple times in my life. If I stayed in one place long enough, I bet I could get up to three. <laughs> 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 but but anyway, it takes it, it, it. There's I'm talking intensive production, so you don't need large amounts of land to make your living. Um, where was I going with that? Um, just a, a farming. go. Nope. Okay, anyway,
0: yeah, we'll we'll link some of your YouTube videos. They're really it's amazing to see all those plants together. So and they're so vibrant mm-hmm. and they grow I mean, I don't know if it's because you're in Oregon, <laughs> but yeah, how do how do you Because do
2: you I love them? the plants yeah. and I, I have lots of fairies helping me. Yeah. <laughs> That's right. It might help your bottom line folks. It just if you you know yeah. if you can add next to Ten grand or so by being friendly to the fairies. Why not? Why not? <laughs> yeah, it's in your
0: self-interest.
3: <laughs> yeah.
2: So we're we're almost here at the end. Um,
0: just before we we leave you, uh, do you have any advice for for
2: homesteaders, farmers, home gardeners, uh, just starting out on this path? Uh, do some research. Watch it. these days. You there's so many great YouTubes out there. And It's a really a nice way to get some education without paying too much money. Or you know you can you can uh, come and go you can you can go down various rabbit hole rabbit holes, um, and of course I I read a lot of books um, that's useful too, but I would say this start small and take care of what you plant. A lot of people make the mistake of planting more than they can adequately care for, and so um, if you you wanna be able to give an adequate follow-up care to what you do put in so that it turns out well. My goal is that everything I plant does really well and, and, and grows fast and vigorously as, as the species is able to uh, is sort of, you might say, maximizing its potential. Um, that is um, being able to do that with everything you plant, it's much, e- it's much more fun and inspiring to be a successful gardener than to be a bad gardener and so fail allow your stuff dying so it takes you it takes some years to really get good at it so you you know after 4 years you should really have really the basics down and then it's pretty good sailing from there on so but anyway so you got to sort of like put you know you know, put in the early years and but don't you know take really good care of what you have and even at that, I do lose, you know, a small percentage of things I put in don't work or die or the soil wasn't quite right or something, but it's probably somewhere around the range of, you know, 5% or less of what I attempt doesn't do well. I'm, I'm almost everything I do uh, does well. Um, I guess having a green thumb and uh, decades of experience actually does help. Folks. <laughs> really?
0: <laughs> yeah. That's a surprise. Are
1: there... Just real quick, are there any plants specifically that you just love and are really excited about right now and that you can't imagine not having at your herb farm? I know it's kind of like asking, an, you know, farmer what you're like.
3: Well, herb then, herb actually, herb I herb have a list of what. But...
2: Yes. Thank no, what you. Okay. <laughs>
3: um,
2: well, you know, the. Every site's different, but the almost everybody I think could benefit from growing having sweet clover where they can, where the climate's okay for sweet clover. Just throwing some of that seed around—it's really cheap. Takes about—it's the second year before you really start getting bloom. You know, a lot of blooms, and but it doesn't run like I don't, White clover is something I I keep out of most of my I, I pretty much keep out of my system because it doesn't work well in beds. Uh, runnering, uh, some people use it as a ground cover, but not me. I, but I like red clover because it stays in one spot it, and, and it will maybe spread by seed, but it, uh, it's easy to weed relatively. It's got one basal root if I, want, if I need to take it out, but it's, um, that red clover is a really great medicine. Almost everybody benefit from it. Another is nettles. It's like, do you have enough? Do you have a place where people don't go? You can't put it that, You don't want to put it next to a path. Or somewhere where they, you know, next to the kids' playground or anything. But is there somewhere in, in your system you can put some nettle? Because nettle is, again, just a wonderful food. It's a great soil builder. Um, and <clears throat> there's a, a lot of benefit to that. Um, yeah, it's, it's, that's, those are two things. And it's also pretty easy to grow a little bit of, of an oat patch. Just grow a little patch of oats and you can harvest it for oat straw. You can get some milky oats. And almost everybody's going to benefit from some milky oats and oat straw in their diet mm. uh, or in their tea regime. Mm-hmm. So um, they uh, that'll help your nervous system and it will help keep you more uh, mineralized.
0: Yeah, those are three great nutritive herbs there.
1: Yeah, I love milky oats. Yeah, and,
0: nettle, and nettles. I, I love all three, actually, yeah.
1: yeah. <laughs> cool.
0: Well, this has been a wonderful conversation i'm so glad that we got to talk to you um and yeah is there anything else you'd like to share with folks before before we end
2: uh well maybe have me back in about a year or so you know cycle me through again yeah uh, yeah good luck to good luck on your projects there and helping get good information out to the world and all your listeners and may there be more of them um Thank you. and yeah you know everybody should do something to help uh, restore the earth around them we, yeah. you know if, like I like to say if you if you breathe air and you drink water and you eat food you know you know pay 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 something back to mother earth and and you do it uh, do some of it physically okay yeah. well I bet most of your listeners are doing that just fine so <laughs> but I, I love preaching to the choir it's just so yes. much easier. yeah, it's
3: awesome. yeah that's the
1: best. well
2: thank you so much again
1: Michael and We'll talk to you again soon.
2: Okay, yeah, tell them tell them to yep, look up those uh YouTube channels, Friends of the Trees and Anna Pilata and Global Earth Repair. Okay. Oh yeah.
1: We'll definitely link them in the show notes. Really
3: good
2: oh. Bye. Bye-bye.